History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 331st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, we're back from New York. We are. It's so much warmer here, although not by a lot. You <laughs> really, cold. it is a little bit chilly in Florida, but you nearly froze to death oh, in New York. It. I mean, I already knew I was going to freeze to death, but I think you literally got a little touch of hypothermia the evening we did the ghost tour. I guess maybe I did. <laughs> and that's what we're going to feature on this episode. My hypothermia? Yes, your hypothermia. No, we aren't. <laughs> <laughs> that's all we're going to talk about for the next. That's all we're going to talk about for the next hour. <laughs> it's really miserable. I could not get warm. Yeah, you shivered and shivered probably for a couple hours after we got back to the hotel. And didn't we have the air cranked up to 80? Yes, in the room? it was very warm <laughs> in that still room. I couldn't warm up. Yeah, that's why I think you definitely had hypothermia a little bit. So as I alluded to, we're going to be talking about Haunted Greenwich Village. Very excited to bring this to you guys. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Shane, Jacob, Dwayne, Mandy with an I, Jade, Chantel, and Linda. Welcome, everybody. And I do want to point out that three of those people, Jacob, Chantel, and Linda, will be welcoming them into the cemetery later on in the episode, too. So that's pretty cool. That's so amazing to first come into the crew and then immediately start supporting the show. Thank you so much, you guys. Really appreciate it. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Janae McCabe. Parrots are adorable birds and so smart. Most of the time when we picture one in our head, we envision them with bright plumage. If you add a cockatoo into the mix, you see white. But would you ever imagine a parrot with black feathers? Enter the Pesquette's parrot. This variety is nicknamed the Dracula parrot, and it truly fits that name. Their beaks are pitch black, the feathers of their chest are black and gray, and their wings and lower body have bright red feathers. When they're in flight, their wings look like they're painted with a broad red stripe. Males have a very small red patch behind their ears. The Dracula parrot's tail feathers are short but broad. These beautiful birds are only found in the mountains of New Guinea. This parrot is large and one of a kind and perfectly suited for Dracula's shoulder. And that certainly is odd. And I have to say, they remind me somewhat of a Congo African gray, but their tails are a little bit longer, but their heads are really unique. They don't look anything like a regular parrot to me. They almost have a bird of prey type of look to them. I just know they look really cool. They do. You're not afraid of a little ghost, are you? And now, this month in history.
the month of March on the 26th in 1945, the Battle of Iwo Jima came to an end. This year marks the 75th anniversary of this battle that was immortalized in a picture that we all know so well, featuring Marines raising an American flag on the island. The Battle of Iwo Jima was a major battle during World War II that began on February 19, 1945 and lasted for five weeks. Some of the bloodiest fighting of the war occurred at this time. Although an American victory was almost guaranteed, the beginning stages did not go well as the terrain proved to be more difficult than what had been thought and that the Marines suffered an 83.3% casualty rate with the first wave of landings. The United States Marine Corps and Navy eventually captured the island from the Imperial Japanese Army. The island proved to not be strategically important since it could not be used as a base of operations, but psychologically it benefited the Allies. The aforementioned picture of raising the flag on Iwo Jima was taken by Joe Rosenthal on February 23, 1945. A black and white photograph depicts six Marines from E Company 2nd Battalion, 28th Marines, raising a U.S. flag atop Mount Surubaki. It won the Pulitzer Prize. Greenwich Village is on the island of Manhattan in New York City. After European settlement, this area would become a place for carriage houses, black servant quarters, and row homes. The area would industrialize and become home to slums. Eventually, the avant-garde would come and soon beatniks, hippies, artists, and homosexuals called the village home. Upscale stores moved in and New York University bought up historic buildings and gutted them. Residents have not embraced these changes, nor does it seem have the ghosts. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Greenwich Village. Kelly, if people were to ask us what was our favorite part of visiting New York City, and it was a whirlwind trip. We were barely there for four full days. It was mostly half a day on a Saturday and Tuesday morning. We were just heading out to the airport. So we basically had two and a half days to spend in New York City. What was your favorite area? Oh, definitely Greenwich Village. I would agree. Although I was, as people who follow us on our social media will have seen, starstruck and very excited to see Times Square for the first time in my life. You were so cute. (laughs) (laughs) I loved your excitement. We returned to Greenwich Village the day after we did the tour because we wanted to see it in the daylight. We were so enthralled with it. Absolutely. And I already was enthralled with it before I even got there. It was very interesting for me to finally visit it because it was different than what I was expecting. Keep in mind that I came out when I was a teenager. And at the time, which was the 80s, I didn't know any gay people. Basically, I'd watch Phil Donahue, who was the Oprah of our time. Right. For for those of you who are young. (laughs) And occasionally he would have gay people on there or drag queens, transsexuals, that kind of thing. And I loved watching those programs because, ooh, those people are like me. Right. So I'd go to the library and check out a lot of books. And in a lot of those books, I would read about Greenwich Village and the village and all the gay stuff that was going on there. And so I was expecting it to be a real gay mecca, especially since the gay rights movement got its start there. Sure. But it was very different nowadays. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. 
So, Kelly, I popped down that little rabbit hole because you just asked, were the village people, is that where they get their name from? And I wasn't quite sure. And sure enough, the group's name refers to New York City's Greenwich Village at the time known for its large gay population. The more you know. (laughs) So anyway, that's what I was expecting it to be like, because that's what I had in my brain as a kid. People walking around with headdresses on, Native American headdresses and construction workers with their shirts off and... (laughs) Yes, Kelly, that's exactly what I was Dancing expecting. in the street. <laughs> Sorry. My head goes to strange places. Oh, yes, it does. No, but I was just expecting to see a lot of gay everywhere. Right. And it was not that way. I mean, we obviously were going to go past the Stonewall Inn and we'll talk about it. We've got drinks there and stuff like that. But otherwise, it didn't have a real gay feel to it. And I have a feeling, as we were saying there in the introduction... New York University has come in and bought all of these historic buildings. And while it's great because we're going to be preserving them because they're protected, they have really gutted it. And because you've got all these students living around there, Mm -hmm. it's totally changed the culture. Right. So they have to keep the exterior Mm -hmm. original or, you know, faithful to the old charm and everything. But the interiors are completely gutted and updated and a lot of, shall we say, it's very upscale. It's more upscale in terms of its clientele who reside there. (laughs) Yes, I would have to agree. So let's talk a little bit about the history that we have going on here. The island was named for the Manhattan Lenape tribe and was first mapped by the Dutch East India Company's British navigator, Henry Hudson. Obviously, we all know that the Hudson River is named for him, which we got to see for the first time, at least me. You'd seen it before, right? Yes, once before. But it was the first time I got to see it. It was very cool. And we all know about the plane, the miracle on the Hudson that the pilot lands on there. So it was like, wow. just A little bit easier to view how and why they were able to land a plane there. Exactly. (laughs) And we also, along those lines, we went to the 9-11 Memorial. Right. Wow, was that moving. Very much so. And we watched all this stuff happen, gosh, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. On TV. Mm -hmm. And when you watch it on TV, obviously we felt it at the time, but it almost kind of seems surreal, like it didn't happen, although we know it happened. When you're there and you see the footprints of the buildings. Right. It's a lot more impactful, definitely. Yeah. The names, we go through the museum, you see these people's personal belongings, pieces of the planes that they recovered, and what some of the stores look like, just covered in that thick dust. Right. It's like, wow, this... It happened right here. Yeah, it was pretty tough going through there. It was. It definitely was. By 1624, a fur trading settlement was set up and Fort Amsterdam was built on the southern tip of Manhattan. The island was purchased by the Dutch from the Manhattan in 1626 for around $24. Oh, my word. They paid big bucks there. Of course, back at that time, it was a little bit more, but not certainly what Manhattan is (laughs) worth now. definitely not. The Native Americans had used what was a very hilly island for hunting and fishing rather than living space. That was something that we did not know until we went on this tour. Right. And our tour guide let us know that a lot of people think that the Manhattan had lived here and everything. And he goes, it was really, really hilly. And you look around Manhattan and you're going, this was hilly? I mean, Central Park's got hills. Right. But the rest of it's just pretty They graded flat. everything down. They did. They dynamited it to get it flatter. And so now it's not hilly anymore. By 1673, the future Greenwich Village had become a hamlet of carriage houses and homes known as Gronwich. And I'm sure I said that wrong, which means Green District. The community officially became Greenwich Village in 1712. 
Greenwich Village was originally separated from New York City by water. So they had a bridge and then there was another road that kind of went along it, but it was usually flooded out because of all the water. Gotcha. The borough was laid out on land located on the east and west sides of the Mineta Creek with a main landmark called Washington Square Park. We went there. We did. A very cool park. The homes of doctors and lawyers and the other rich and influential of New York were built around the park. Eventually, high rises would be built along with office buildings. The gay rights movement would be born here, as was Howdy Doody. It's Howdy Doody time. <laughs> now I'm going to have that earworm stuck in my head again. <laughs> I know. We walked past the house and our tour guide had mentioned that. And he goes, right down in that basement is where Howdy Doody was created. And so we started singing it going up the street. And he was like, no, no, it scared me when I was a kid. <laughs> so I think we horrified him. Well, and I think he actually used the term he was born there. So that makes it even creepier. That's true. He did use that term. The Howdy Doody was born there. But as is the case with all neighborhoods, things would change again as upscale stores moved in and housing became more expensive. The village has always held an aura for gay people. And when we found out that New York Ghosts hosted a ghost tour through it, we were excited. We met our tour guide, Damien, under the arch in Washington Square Park. The temperature had dipped down into the 20s with a brisk wind that would send the wind chill below the 20s. It was freezing. It was more than freezing. And... Yes, we're from Florida, so our blood is thinner, but we also don't have winter jackets. And we I couldn't even find gloves to purchase unless we had ordered them ahead of time on Amazon. Yeah, because I was like, you know, what, we're <laughs> probably going to need to get some gloves. I had a knit cap and scarf and they, they definitely helped me out, but I didn't have any gloves that were had fingers. I had fingerless gloves. Right. And so as did I, <laughs> I was like, maybe I should get some before we go. Well, you can't find any here, even though it's winter in Florida. Mm-mm. So we ended up buying them on the street there. So this was going to be a tough tour for these Floridians, but we learned so much about this area of New York City that it was worth the sacrifice. We were joined on the tour by a couple from Montreal who were much more prepared for the weather, and they literally laughed at us when they found out that we were from Florida. <laughs> like, they took far too much joy in the fact that we were freezing our high knees off. <laughs> it was cute because there weren't a whole lot of people out because it was so cold, right. especially on a Saturday night. And this couple comes over to us because we'd been standing there for a while. And they're like, are you doing a ghost tour, too? And we're like, yeah, 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 because we're looking for a tour guide with a lantern right. somewhere. And he was a little bit late. And so we introduced ourselves and we're like, God, it's so cold tonight. And we're like, we're from Florida. And they're like, oh, we're from Montreal. So this is actually south for us. They were really far too tickled. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Emil was quite tickled by the fact that we were from Florida. And he just couldn't stop laughing as we were shivering. <laughs> If I didn't have such a good sense of humor, I might have smacked him, but... <laughs> yeah. And I know as we get along in the tour, at one point, you're looking at me and you're like, you're not really complaining about the cold or anything anymore. Are you okay? And I was like, I think I'm just numb at this point. I, can't <laughs> I was worried about you because you got really quiet for a while. And I know how cold I was. I was really kind of miserable. It was really tough. But I loved the tour. And so I was struggling to, you know, pull out my phone to take pictures and stuff because mm -hmm. I was shaking so hard. Yeah, because it was like, I had to take my hands out of my gloves. Right. And so your hands would just immediately freeze because the wind, I mean, it was really, it was about a 10 mile per hour, if not more wind. Guys, while we were outdoors during our trip, the most I pretty much saw of Diane were just her eyeballs. <laughs> she had that scarf wrapped <laughs> turban style around her face. And then she had her beanie cap on and her jacket with extra hoods coming out from her sweatshirt pulled up over her head. I mean, I literally saw her eyes, but <laughs> I was, I was wrapped I up understood pretty why. good. And for this tour, they had, you could pay an extra $5 for a 30-minute add-on. Uh-huh. And of course you did. Which I did, because I wanted all <laughs> the extra. 
And this is the only ghost tour that I've been on that I was like, is this ever going to end? Not because I was like, this tour sucks. I just was so cold. Right. I was just like, oh my God, I just wanted to end. So I we felt the leave. same way. I couldn't feel my feet. I was worried about going down, <laughs> hearing the alarms. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> Kelly's going down because I just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't feel, feel my feet. feet. I thought I was going to trip and fall. And the thing is, I'm prone to that anyway. And the thing is, we weren't going to be going back to a car that we could heat up and sit no. next to the heater really quick. We we're going to have to walk a few blocks to catch the subway and right. then walk a few more blocks to get back to the hotel. Absolutely. So needless to say, that's why you were hypothermic by the time we yeah, got there. Yeah, I would suppose so. Because even though you could only see my eyes, I was bundled up really well. You were not. That's true. All right. So back to the tour. Damien introduced himself and let us know he would be sharing just as much history as ghost stories and that he would take us places not on the normal tour, which was perfect for us. He clearly loves the village and knows his stuff and has lived in Alphabet City for many years. He was full of great tips and taught us to cross streets like a native New Yorker. <laughs> which means you just go. Right. And you were still hesitant on that. I just started the whole rest of the time we were there. I'm just like, I'm going. <laughs> yeah, once Kelly was trained, she was off and I was like, we're going to die. <laughs> I did have to wait on the opposite side of the street once or twice for you because <laughs> you, you got left behind. Now, you had asked me when we were in New York, he keeps talking about Alphabet City. What is that? The streets that run in this part of the Greenwich Village neighborhood are A, B, C, and D. That's where they get the Alphabet ah, City okay. from. Before we get into the tour, one of the places that we pass on the tour was the Stonewall Inn. Damien didn't share any stories other than to tell us the riots had taken place here. So clearly he didn't know it was haunted. And obviously we knew it was haunted. Right. For those of you who don't know, the whole reason we were in New York City is because episode 300, which featured the Stonewall Inn, was up for a Guides Association of New York City award. And so that was like one of the key things that we wanted to for sure see. Right. The purpose of the trip. And we had thought that we would be catching a drink there after the tour because the bars there are open till 4 a.m. <laughs> But we were Blows my mind. We were so frozen. The idea of getting uh, a beer or wine just was not. Maybe drinking a bunch of whiskey. That <laughs> yeah, something that a little harder, further, maybe. But <laughs> warm our innards. So we'd already decided that we wanted to return to Greenwich Village the next day in the daylight and take some pictures and see everything. And so that's when we decided to go get the drinks. And we did go inside. It was special for us in many ways. One, this was the place where the gay rights movement started. And then, of course, like I said, that episode was the one that we were up for an award for. So it was just really cool about that. So what were your thoughts when we went into the bar? It was very small. Yes. I had a really hard time envisioning all the chaos that would occur in terms of when they would get raided mm -hmm. and so forth. How that even transpired where they were able to get out a different way just because... It was so small. Yeah, I am wondering if back in the day, maybe they had the adjoining part of the building and Possibly. had a wall knocked out because when we walked in, it was basically a large closet is kind of what it felt like. It had mirrors on the one side. So at first when we walked in, I thought it was a lot bigger. Yeah, it looked larger. And then I realized, oh, no, those are mirrors. So that's where the wall ends. Well, I'm wondering, too, how far back the building went because there was that velvet, the red velvet rope where we couldn't go back into that that's portion. True. So that's maybe true. it goes back further. But yeah, it was quite narrow. And you it, know what? it didn't seem like it would hold many people in terms of capacity. I'm betting maybe that's where a dance floor was, maybe back there. Ah, that the would bar make was sense. at the front. Yeah. 
And then it was just a narrow little hallway before you went back into that back room that was blocked off, like you said. Right. And there were bathrooms right there. And there were a couple little bar-sized pool tables, which, you know, are much smaller than standard mm-hmm. size. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was tiny. But the cool thing is there were two seats available right at, at the bar. The bar. So that's where <laughs> they we, plopped, knew we were coming. <laughs> plopped ourselves down. And uh, I got a local brew on tap. And I can't remember what it was called. It was like by the Brooklyn Brewery or something, I think. Yeah, I don't recall. I know. It was I, I remember that the tap had rainbow on it. <laughs> yes, it had rainbow. That's why I'm like, I'll just take whatever that is. Yeah. And then what did you get? I got a rum and coke. But it was really cool. So we were just sitting there looking at all the t-shirts they had available and the shot glasses and stuff and just sitting there thinking about, wow, this is where the gay rights movement started. Yeah, all the history of it. And then a black gentleman sat down right next to us and he started talking to these women who'd come up to the bar to get some drinks. And he had mentioned something about New York University and how it had gutted something. And he clearly was not happy about it. He's lived in the village for decades. I think he was probably there during the riots, maybe even. And so then I turned and said, yeah, we had noticed that on our tour last night. And he was a talker because yes, then he was. he was off and running. <laughs> and boy, did we get an earful about how the village used to be, the culture that was there, how much he missed it. That right. There wasn't a lot of the gay stuff around anymore. Well, and he came out when he was 15. And I'm guessing, I mean, he looked very well cared for. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Beautiful skin and everything. But I think he was probably in his late 50s. Yeah. Early maybe 60s. even early 60s. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah. He definitely was, was um, an older gentleman. Yeah, he was a wealth of information. We definitely got a lot of insight, at least from his perspective, mm-hmm. as to what everything was like back yeah, then. Yeah, you basically hear from a local how much they hate the fact that the village has changed. Right. And how much he hates. And that is the word that he used. I know. New York University. Right. And all those rich kids, because it is the most expensive school, I think, in the country. It's more expensive than Ivy League schools and everything. Right. It is. So they've got the money and that's what they've done is just gone through because they need dorm space. And so they're just buying all these old buildings and turning them into dorms. I'm lucky, so lucky the arrow missed my heart. Let's start with Washington Square Park since this is where we started and ended the tour. This is a place full of history and many reasons for being haunted. Washington Square started as a small marsh through which the Mineta Creek flowed. The Dutch freed their slaves and gave them plots of land near the creek as a kind of buffer against the Native Americans that they had run off. This became known as the Land of the Blacks. Can you imagine? You're like, okay, we're going to let you be free. And look, we're going to give you this great plot of land. (laughs) So the Native Americans will come kill you before they kill us? Exactly. (laughs) Good grief. Eventually, the park would become the heart of Greenwich Village, and many rich families would build their homes around it. Over time, it would become a central place for the avant-garde to gather. The most prominent feature here is the Washington Arch, named for our first president to whom it is dedicated, and two of his statues are part of this gorgeous piece. It's officially known as the Memorial Arch and is located at the north end of the park. The original arch was designed by New York architect Sanford White and erected in 1889. That was not anything like this one having been made from wood and decorated with items made from paper mache. I know. When I was researching (laughs) this and I'm like, okay, what was it made out of? Because I want to know what kind of marble or whatever. Right. And then it's like, well, this is just the second one. The first one originally was. And I'm like, wood and then paper mache? Yeah, the stuff that was (laughs) decorated like wreaths and things around it were made out of paper mache. 
I mean, it was definitely meant to be temporary, but... Right. I mean, with the weather there, I don't even... Yeah. (laughs) I can't really wrap my head around that one. The one that is here now was also designed by White and made from Tuckahoe marble with construction beginning in 1890 and completed in 1895. One might wonder why it took five years to build this monument. Now, it's pretty slow to put... It's it's a big monument, but not that big. I mean, it's really, really large. And I know, of course, that chiseling and sculpting marble is difficult. And I'm sure it was even more so back then. But that's a long time. Not only that, but the different implements that are all around it, that decorate it, the different statues and things, those are all going to be added later. So this is just the base core of it took that long. Washington Square Park is a graveyard, Kelly, as we came to find. I know. So what happens when you are digging around in an old graveyard where the bodies haven't been moved, just headstones are gone? (laughs) Well, you tend to disturb the peace of the dead. Yeah, and there were thousands of bodies that had been buried here and never moved. So you can imagine when ground was broken for the monument, workers found a lot more than just dirt. When it was completed, the arch stood 77 feet tall and had a bow art styling. David H. King Jr., who built the pedestal for the Statue of Liberty, supervised construction of the arch. Many artists contributed their works to the memorial, as I was telling you, with two statues of Washington being added in 1916 and 1918. The arch itself is the scene of one of the ghost stories told here. As World War I started, there were a group of artists who decided that they should declare Greenwich Village its own sovereign nation. Okay. We For such be... a small area, we're a sovereign nation. <laughs> we want to be our own nation. <laughs> they decided to do this from the top of the arch. So I thought we were going to get a story of all these people falling off, which did not happen, thank God. But what they did do is they brought up balloons and lanterns and they lit a fire as they read their declaration and celebrated. Even though they were probably drunk, nobody managed to fall off. <laughs> oh, God. But many yeah, people that's true. <laughs> but many people walking through the park at night have witnessed the scene on top of the arch as it plays over again in a residual manner. Wow, I didn't realize that they had the residual going on on top of the arch. No, and the way they got up there is we couldn't see it, but there's some kind of a door and you can climb up inside ah, in a ladder to okay. get to the top of it somehow. I mean, it's pretty tall. It is. So I was like, how do you get, how would have they gotten up there? Oh my gosh, I'd get vertigo and fall off without being drunk. And it's not that wide. I mean, it's, I don't know, what would you say about 15 s- feet across? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, because we were huddling underneath it trying yeah. to get out of the wind. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, about 15 feet. Yeah. So I mean, it's. It's something that you could easily fall off of if you're partying a little too hard. This park is full of spirits. As we mentioned, this was a graveyard and thousands of people were buried here in mass graves and unmarked graves as epidemics would course through the area. The Manhattan were also driven from this area and people see their spirits here too, possibly trying to return to a place that was their hunting ground. Edgar Allan Poe's spirit has been seen walking through the park. And in the northwest corner is the Hangman's Elm. This is one of the oldest trees in New York, and legend claims that it was used to hang and lynch many people in the past. The main branch that was used broke off in the 1990s, but that doesn't stop people from claiming to see shadowy figures hanging from the tree. Specters are seen gathering around the base of the tree, and it is thought that they are spirits of executed prisoners from a nearby jail. There is a ghost dog here, too. Many think that this is Fala, President Franklin Roosevelt's beloved Scottish terrier who died in 1952. Fala was buried next to FDR in Hyde Park, but it spent a lot of time near Washington Square Park when Eleanor Roosevelt lived here in Greenwich Village. Perhaps the pup loved its time at the park so much that it has returned on occasion in the afterlife. So we make our way down the street from Washington Square Park, and the first place we are pointed to look at is this really tall building that is called the Brown Building, and it's now owned by New York University. It had once been home to 
the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And many of you who are history buffs have probably heard about this factory and have heard about the fire that happened here. I know we covered it in one of our This Months in History. Right. The factory was located on the top three floors of what was at that time called the Ash Building. And this was owned by Isaac Harris and Max Blank. This was a dangerous sweatshop. Damien shares about sweatshops here in the village and then starts to tell us of the tragedy that took place here. This was Broadway, and just five minutes from here where I lived, the Lower East Side, was the slums. Shoulder to shoulder people. They're living in the tenement buildings. A new building that comes into fashion. They were five stories high, they held more people. You would have worked in the sweatshops. Have you heard about the sweatshops here in New York called sweatshops? The city decides to use tin for walls. Not realizing on a hot day, tin activates heat. Oh, just like an oven. Dressed in Victorian clothing covered from neck to toe. They and their child bakes like cakes for 10 to 12 hours in these sweatshops. They ran up and down Broadway with the slums being just lower east from here. This building right here on the corner. Today is the Brown Building. It is a part of NYU, New York University administration. Today, all of the park is New York University. Everything around it. This building was the Ash Building. And it advertised its rooms, fireproof. It was the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory that occupied the three top floors, eight, oh, wow. nine, and 10. It employed about 500 people, mostly women, well over 400 women. Between the ages of 14, they say, 46. Now, it was March 23rd, 1911. It was a Saturday. They worked Monday through Saturday. And it was just at the end of the day, which would have meant time for pay. They got paid at the end of every Saturday. And they believed that one of the workers smoked a cigarette. I still know today they'll still check your bags if you work in a store at the waste factory here. They would lock the door. The only way to find the building is if they open their bags on the way out. And one warden with the key would let this warden that day hears fire and immediately evacuate this building, leaving all employees locked in the building. We'll take over the story as the wind drowns out Damien. So, yeah, these women were locked into the building like prisoners, having to prove that they didn't have material in their bags in order to be let out. As fire breaks out, the guy with the key leaves without unlocking the door. 500 women are left inside. The day was March 25th in 1911, so almost 109 years ago. And while the cause of the fire is blamed on an employee, the two men who owned this factory had a history of suspicious fires in their factories. It seems they liked to collect the insurance money, and so they were unwilling to install safety measures like sprinklers. The factory was built in a very precarious way, too, with only one elevator working and a long, narrow corridor that employees had to navigate to get to the elevator. The elevator was only able to make four trips, carrying 12 women at a time, before it broke down. The fire escape was very narrow, and the fire hose was rotted. So these people were just sitting ducks. Absolutely. And the owners of the factories were terrible human beings, in my opinion. And the thing is, they were in the factory, and of course, they get out okay. Of course they did. Some women jumped down the elevator shaft to their deaths. Others made it to the bottom of the stairs, only to find that locked door. The employees and owners above the fire managed to get to the roof and make their way over to other buildings. So, as I said, those owners managed to live. Right. Other trapped women started making the awful decision to jump from the windows. 
And for those of us that witnessed the tragic events of 9-11, we can all envision this scene quite well. The firefighters were helpless to do much as their ladders only reached the seventh floor and the fire started on the eighth floor, so they could not even reach it. Multiple girls would jump into a net together, shredding the net and making it useless. The tragedy was over in 18 minutes and 145 people were dead. I'm surprised it was that low. Right. I figured it was more. Yeah, they're lucky it was only 145. The owners were never indicted. And they only paid families of victims $75 of the 400 that the insurance company paid out for each victim. Ugh, Can you imagine? Disgusting. You think you'd feel bad enough that you'd left these people like sitting ducks like this? Exactly. That you, out of guilt, you would and have given all that money. And the insurance paid fa- 400 Yes. And they only got 75 I can't even. If any good came from this, it was that fire safety standards had to be met and labor laws were enacted. So it fired up everything that you could possibly imagine at that time. Thank goodness. Whether it was how they were going to build the buildings from now on, but also the labor laws. Because these sweatshops were working these people tirelessly and leaving them in these horrible conditions. So all of that was going to change. This was the largest disastrous fire in New York City until 9-11. And this kind of tragedy leaves behind immense spiritual residue, as we all know. People claim to see the images of women falling from the building and that these shadows dissipate as they approach the ground. Students in the building have felt as though they are having panic attacks and a sudden need to evacuate the building. And they just don't know why. I'm not surprised. There was one young lady who was working in a lab and she just felt uncomfortable the whole time. And she just kept going, I just kept feeling like I had to get out of my chair and get out of there. And I don't know why. And it was probably just that feeling that she was picking up on from that energy back then. The library for New York University is called the Elmer Holmes Bopes Library. It's been open since 1973. It's a very good year. Mm, I kind (laughs) of like the year two years before it, but okay. Actually, I think I prefer 71 as well. Oh, aren't you sweet? (laughs) (laughs) There were many protests to it being opened, especially since it is tall. And that height had caused an unexpected issue in more recent years. Damien explains. This is Bose Library. It's got New York University's library. Now, I've heard rumors about a ghost librarian. Uh, the students say they smell cheap perfume. They hear the wheeling of a book cart, shuffling of papers. I don't know if she had anything to do with this at all. But from 2003 to 2009, eight NYU students and their wives by jumping from the top floors of the library. We can see the floor is made of marble, so you can imagine what happens to them as they hit the bottom. Believe it or not, this summer I had a girl who was in my neighborhood on the side, a student here in 2003. I was like, what happened? Is it true? She said, yes, it's true. It was the first one she jumped. It was a boy. It was testing me. It was very tight. This girl opened her up with a very guy. Very much in love with her. He did drugs. It was the first jump. But what makes seven other students jump after him in such a short period of time? I can't. I just call this one a party hall. Do you see the suicide panels? They were never there until 2009. Because of so many students ending their lives, they were able to put them up. They're called the suicide panels. Wow. So here I thought it was a cool decorative feature. Yeah, I did too. They made it look decorative. Yeah. So eight students committed suicide here, according to Damien. Wikipedia has three as well as some news sources. The suicide panels are a unique design, and it certainly was chilling to learn their real purpose. 
I remember the first time we looked into the windows and I looked up and I was like, wow, that's really unique. Obviously, it's a university. This is an artistic area. So it must be an art thing. It looks like ones and zeros. To me, it looked like a complete art installation. Yes, that's totally what I would have thought of. And then he's like, oh, those are suicide panels. And it's like, oh, my God. Can you imagine? And I can't even imagine as high up as for what we were able to see. Mm -hmm. Somebody jumping from up there i mean it's just horrible no and i mean it's a marble floor so and also as we're saying this is a really tall building that's why there were so many protests to it being installed because this is right down the street from washington square park and it's this huge building and of course they didn't want to have huge buildings around that so over and over you've heard us referring to how new york university has destroyed much of the history in the village with all that money you would think they could restore rather than destroy things And one place they changed was the Brittany Hotel, which is now their Brittany Residence Hall. This is located at 55 East 10th Street at the northwest corner of Broadway, across from the Gothic-styled Grace Church that was built in 1846 by James Renwick. The dormitory rises to 15 stories and was built in 1929 as a residence hotel. It had multi-pane casement windows and a Gothic styling. And these are those really cool windows that there's like, they're just all those squares. Right, right. All the different paneling with the old glass. These windows were replaced with single-pane windows by the university. Now, of course, they're definitely more energy efficient now. True. Easier to see out of. But But I miss the old glass. Yeah, and it it has changed the look of the building. The former penthouse is now a 24-hour study hall. In its heyday, this served as a speakeasy. There are still false walls behind the bookcases there. Very cool. Famous people who've lived here include Al Pacino, Adam Sandler, Debbie Harry, and Jerry Garcia. Wow. There was also a four-year-old girl who'd lived here or been in the building, and her spirit may still be here. This little four-year-old girl was named Molly, and she apparently fell down the elevator shaft when the hotel was being built. Residents have seen her spirit in the hallways. She's not the only one heard and seen. Disembodied heavy footsteps are heard, and there is music that can be heard that no one can figure out where it's coming from. A former resident claimed that he and his fiancée were kept awake all night by a presence they couldn't see. Another former resident named Karen claimed to have what almost sounds like sleep paralysis experience, although it continued to the point that most of us would call it a possible haunting. Karen had come in late one night and her roommate was already fast asleep. Karen got into bed, but she tossed and turned and was fully awakened when she felt a force pressing down on her and she couldn't breathe. She sat up thinking she was having a dream and then she realized that something was still holding her legs. She could see a dim shadowy figure at the end of the bed with its hands around her ankles. Karen started screaming and her roommate snapped on the light. The figure was no longer there and Karen moved to a different door. (laughs) Who could blame blame her? (laughs) (laughs) Now, one of the next places that we went to was a big surprise for you and I. It was. We knew that Edgar Allan Poe had a cottage that was over in the Bronx and we were going to try to make an attempt to go see it. It just didn't fit into our schedule. We didn't even go over to that area. Right. We we were running around to so many different places. Uh, I can't believe everything we did get fit in. This is true. Considering we were on subway and foot the whole time. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that we didn't have a whole lot of time. So we stop outside of this building and this is a place where apparently Edgar Allan Poe had once lived. And I didn't know Kelly, but he lived in like four or five places in the New York City area there. So I think he moved around a lot because he didn't have a lot of money. So maybe he got kicked out Possibly. or rent was too much or I don't know. But this was one of the places that he had lived. And Damien tells us about the artist who moved into this area. This is Greenwich Village. This is the wealthy families. You can uptown live on Fifth Avenue. They live in six floor mansions. 
if your child was creative, an artist, it was an embarrassment to the family. Your punishment, they sent you to Greenwich Village. Not such a bad punishment, other than maybe <laughs> your living quarters would have been much smaller. But this was all arts, writers, dancers. As the wealthy families moving around the park, more wealthy families start living around the park. So we didn't know that Poe had lived in the village before moving to his cottage in the Bronx. It wasn't for a long time, 1844 to early 1846, but apparently he haunts the place. This is not the original building. New York University bought it and planned to demolish it, but preservationists made the university sign a deal in which they dismantled the house but used the bricks to recreate the facade within the structure, and they also had to place a plaque outside explaining its historical significance. Damien's going to explain a little bit now here. Around the park, more wealthy families start living around the park. 1844. Today, again, administration for NYU. 1844, this was Edgar Allan Poe's house. He and his 13-year-old cousin bride, Virginia, lived here in this house just over one year. While living here, a prolific writer. He writes The Cask of Amatelito, three short stories, part of the Raven, while he was living here. Notable, notorious adult. Many, many affairs. And mostly with women authors. Again, well, let's see. Fanny Osgood bears him an illegitimate son. Uh, I understand terribly deformed, and I believe dies young from respiratory issues. Elizabeth Ellis, a mean-spirited woman and probably the most notable of all of his mistresses. She loathes Virginia. She herself called the letters that she writes Virginia poison pens. They're scathing letters wishing her ill. Now, it is just here in the front parlor one day that uh, Virginia's playing the piano and singing. She has her first bout of blood. Called consumption in the day, we know today is tuberculosis. Uh, Poe's distraught. He moves her to the Bronx for, I think maybe you guys know back then, maybe fresh air would cure. Because the Bronx had less people, less traffic, more land, bigger homes, he believed that would help her people. So he immediately moves there. I know she dies, well, 1847. He dies in 49. She dies 47, 24 years old. On her deathbed, she blames Ellis for her death. Now, do you know the Victorians were obsessed with death? Yeah. <laughs> like, they did strange things, very strange things. On her deathbed, he has her water cooler, her hair done and dressed. The picture stands right there. Afterwards, when they move out, there's a family that purchases the house. Today, the NYU students complain, coming upstairs from one of the bedrooms, they feel like a body is crawling on the floor. The sounds, they hear grunts and moans. This is only my hypothesis. I believe that child may have been autistic. Again, that would have been an embarrassment. Cancer was an embarrassment back then. And they often would have locked the child away. And I have a friend whose daughter, he has, he's a carpenter, and he has to build her this thing on the floor where she crawls. And that's what makes me think that possibly, that's what makes sense to me. So I, they hear that, and also, many, many reports of Virginia standing right there in the window, spirit form, looking out. She acknowledges no one. I believe she's here looking for Poe. Poe is spotted in the only original part of the house. Right here at that white banister. Do you see that? He stands there. At that white banister. 
Now, according to Tom Ogden's Haunted Greenwich Village book, which Kelly bought for me before we went on this trip, thank you. You're welcome. Got a lot of great information from it, too. Poe doesn't haunt the building, but the spirit of a mentally ill woman does. Her family had kept her confined in the attic. So is it this female spirit haunting the place, or is Damien right in thinking that an autistic woman was locked away here somewhere? Because as you heard him say in the audio... He thought maybe it was somebody who was autistic. I think he said it was an autistic child. Yeah, you're right. So, But someone autistic nonetheless. Yes. And then we did look at the picture that was painted of his wife, Virginia, that's still hanging there on the wall. And we also want to point out the same point that we made in our Poe episode, which is way, way back in episode number three. <laughs> My word. <laughs> Many people get their information on Poe from Rufus Griswold's biography of Poe. And if you didn't know, Griswold hated Poe because Poe had given him a lot of literary critiques. That's basically what Poe made his money doing. I mean, he wrote his short stories and all of his poems and those kinds of things. But where he really made his money was as a literary critic. And he did not like Griswold. <laughs> and so he was always writing horrible things about him. So you can imagine if now you've been given the duty of writing this person's biography and obituary. Oh, goody. I can write whatever the hell I want. Exactly. So what he does write is that Poe is this womanizing drunk who did drugs. <laughs> and it's just this horrible human being. And that's what I kind of grew up learning about. Right. Until, most, most of us have. Yeah. Until I did the Poe episode and started reading other things. And I went, wait a minute. I don't even know that he drank that much. Exactly. When you look at the mystery around his death. I mean, obviously, this isn't somebody who died from cirrhosis, which is what they try to tell you. Exactly. Something else was going on here. <laughs> I don't know what it was. I don't know if he... They. I think they did finally prove that it wasn't rabies. I think they did test him for that. But was he poisoned? Was he just beat up so bad that I, I don't know? So we don't necessarily agree with what Damien has said here about Poe. Right. I think Damien pretty much read Griswold's book and yeah, went I mean, from he's, there. <laughs> he's going with what a lot of other people said. So I don't exactly. know that Poe did drugs or drank or had an illegitimate child and was fooling around with all these women because he was very much in love with Virginia and completely devastated when she died. So exactly. I don't know. Right across the street from Poe's place at 84 West 3rd Street is Anderson Cooper's place, an old firehouse and former brothel. And that's Anderson Cooper from CNN. The Anderson Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> the news personality bought the old station in 2009. Before that, this had been a full functioning firehouse. And even before that happened in 1960, it had been a home for a volunteer fire department. But even before that, <laughs> the village's most popular brothel had been built here. Seeing any firehouse in New York is pretty poignant for all Americans. The next day, we would be visiting the 9-11 Memorial, and many NYFD members lost their lives on that day. Dutch colonists had set up a fire department of sorts all the way back in 1648 as a type of fire watch headed by eight wardens. They would work during the days, and at night, the prowlers would take over. These were groups of men that walked the streets from 9 p.m. to dawn, carrying buckets of water like a traveling bucket brigade. That seems really safe and efficient. <laughs> <laughs> I know, a little bit odd. And once you pour one bucket of water, now what? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we started to put it out. Yeah. Things became more official in 1736 when two fire trucks were added to the force. This group was small and all volunteer. In 1865, the fire department would move from volunteer to paid professional firemen. Now, there was something different about the firemen at this particular firehouse. This was not an official NYFD house and was referred to as a fire patrol. 
This was owned by an insurance company, and the main duty of the firemen employed here was to save the stuff inside burning buildings to mitigate losses. So remember when we would go into these Victorian homes and they would put all their important papers right there at the first... At the base of the stairs? Yeah. Yeah. Inside the, the wood baluster, I believe. This would be the duty of the fire patrol to go in and bang that out and pull those out. Right, right. Get all the important documents. This particular firehouse was run by Mutual Assistance Corporation. The fire patrol would rush into a building and pull out everything that could be removed. Whatever could not be removed would be covered with a tarp to protect against ash and water. The fire patrol would then pump out the water just as the firemen are putting it in there. They're trying to get it out just as fast because they wanted to lessen the water damage. After the fire was out, the patrol would clean up and secure the building so thieves and vandals couldn't get inside. The fire patrol could be identified by their red helmets. So we're used to seeing firefighters with black helmets. Right. They had red ones, which when I was growing up as a kid, I seem to remember seeing a lot of red fire helmets. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's different from district to district. Yeah, I don't know. But I thought that was kind of interesting because I'm like, I always thought red helmets were... And then it moved to yellow. Yeah. And then I have seen some black. So I think it just varies depending upon the the city. And up until 2000, they were answering the call for 10,000 fires a year. Wow. So they were still doing it very recently. They saved millions of dollars in equipment and priceless works of art and such. Despite this being the main duty of the patrol, they responded on 9-11 as well, and one of their own was lost. The last of the 10 patrol firehouses that had originally been founded was closed in 2006. That was when this firehouse, patrol number two, was closed, 2006. The building was originally constructed in 1906 and was designed by architect Franklin Bayless in the Beaux-Arts style. There was a large garage door with the head of the god Mercury above it, which symbolizes swiftness. A pair of terracotta trumpets are along the roofline on opposite sides of the date 1906. Anderson Cooper has done a beautiful job of fully restoring the exterior and interior and turned it into his private residence. We're not sure what the inside looks like now, but during its fire days, the interior was made from brick, set in a herringbone design, and the walls were decorated with glass tiles that made up murals depicting the history of the fire patrol. To get to the upper floors, firemen would go up a narrow spiral staircase made of metal, and they would come down via a brass pole. Four fire plaques honoring the fallen men of this house were up on the walls, and were going to be thrown away when the building was up for demolition. One of the firemen's fathers grabbed the plaques. Anderson told the father that he would return the plaques to the outside of the building when the renovations were done. So that's really cool. I think so. You know me. I love it when people save buildings and the fact that Anderson Cooper, he has two other residences in New York. So the fact that he bought this one too and went about to make sure that it was similar to the way it was. It doesn't have the gaudy paint on the outside because it used to have red and white paint and everything on it to make it really bright. Now it looks like it matches all the other brick buildings. So he got all the paint off of it and everything. But it, I mean, it looks like a gorgeous building. It really does. The garage door is different style now, but it's, and it's all brown, but it has right on the front of it. This is a private residence working garage. So don't park here. And installing the plaques to honor the men. I thought that was really, really cool. Definitely. Can you imagine if they just chucked those? Oh, well, we're getting rid of the place. So let's get rid of these. I know. Those men died. Hello. Now, we don't know if Anderson was aware that the firehouse was haunted before he bought it, but he probably knows now. (laughs) Damien tells us about it and some of the ghost stories. It is now 1897. There's a woman living here, and her name is Henrietta Herman, a.k.a. French Madame. Uh, It is she and her girls that entertain the city's top gentlemen right there at the firehouse number two. Okay. Luckily, the windows are off. That was originally her home. Other kind of fires. This was before. Okay. 
So, uh, I do know that the police station has a scandal. Henrietta gets called in as a witness. Now, she was very trusted by the police department and its men, very, very well liked. This was, their, they say, the favorite brothel here in Manhattan. She gets called in to testify, and against her better judgment, she testifies against the police, never to be seen again. Now, I know the place sits empty for a few years, and in 1906, it becomes a volunteer firehouse. It is this firehouse that puts the fire out the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. In the 1960s, it becomes a legit firehouse here in the city. The firemen have many, many reports. Many things take place here. Mostly, something being dragged across the floor of the top floor. Typical par uh, paranormal activity, footsteps coming down the stairs. The fire alarm would go off as the firemen were getting dressed. A path of encouragement. Nothing that evil or dramatic or scary, but a little freaky. One of them firemen reports seeing a heavy set man coming down the pole, going to in a hole that no human could possibly have fit in. And then in the 1960s, there was, sorry, 1990s, there was a fireman that woke up in the middle of the night with a bearded, heavy set man leaning over him, looking down. Again, nothing demonic, but he was very freaked out. I do know they called the parapsychologist in, and this is what the parapsychologist said. There was a volunteer fireman here, his name was Schwartz. He fought in World War I. Him and his wife lived here in the village. Again, very much in love with her. She was having an affair. She leaves him for the other man. He hung himself um. on the fourth floor. So from what we understand, this is one of the spirits, definitely sure, that haunts certainly with the, the fireman, for sure. Now, in 2010, it was purchased at the same we're talking about it, all the lights are off. Anderson Cooper purchases it as his home. Anderson's very private here in the city. Not quite sure for such a private guy why he would have bought on this busy street. Yeah. But he does live it. And I have to tell you guys, I know the first, second, third floor he occupies, the fourth floor, the light is never on. We know that he has a parapsychologist coming in. We do not know what that parapsychologist is. Many of the firefighters claim to have either heard, felt, or seen a spirit in the firehouse. Is the spirit of this Schwartz still hanging out here, and specifically on the fourth floor? Is that why Anderson never has a light on up there? There were a couple of L-shaped streets here in the village that were really neat because they were unique. One of them is named Commerce Street, and the Cherry Lane Theater could be found here, as well as the Twin Sisters' houses. This was a fun story. It would seem a sea captain had twin daughters and he had identical homes built for them with a garden between them. A unique feature stands out right away. Both houses have no windows on the sides that face each other. Apparently, these sisters hated each other and demanded that the houses be designed this way so they wouldn't have to look at each other. Their father named the garden between the house the Garden of Hope. Isn't that sad? <laughs> that is really sad. I can't imagine. And twins. Usually I know. they're so connected. Yeah. As he desired that they come to love each other. That never happened, and it is said that the sisters haunt their homes with full-bodied apparitions being seen outside of the houses with their backs to each other. I mean, still, in the afterlife, we can't get along. Good grief. My sister drives me crazy, but I wouldn't want to have a brick wall facing her house if she lived next to me. <laughs> I mean, poor Christy. I don't think I could ever picture you guys standing with your backs to each other. No, but we, we did have <laughs> our moments when we were kids, for well, sure. Well, you were kids. 
Chumleys. Don't you love that name? I do. <laughs> Sounds like a really cool place to hang out. And this probably was a really cool place to hang out and still might be. We were too cold to go in and spend more time. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't going into any <laughs> bar and having any drinks that night unless it's really hot chocolate. Chumleys is found at 86 Bedford Street. Damien told us that this was the most haunted place in the village. It was named after Leland and Henrietta Chumley, who founded it in 1928. He was a member of the International Workers of the World, and although the place didn't advertise that it served booze, it was a speakeasy during Prohibition. Many famous writers loved to come here. One of the famous people to have slept it off in a corner booth was F. Scott Fitzgerald. <laughs> Can you imagine? Hemingway also had drinks here. The building is very old and had been around long before the bar made this its home. This brick building was built sometime in the 1820s and served as a blacksmith shop, stable, dairy, and garage on the ground floor, and as a working class apartment above. Damien tells us about its history and haunts. This building was a blacksmith shop. Recorded in New York uh, City history, runaway slaves were hidden upstairs. Now, I know that New York State was the third state to free the slaves. However, we were the second to activate it. And this was even after 1827, they would have been in 1920, it is purchased by Lee and Henrietta Chumley. Purchase it is a speakeasy. We know speakeasies? Yeah. Okay. Here in the village, guys, always still to this day, there are certain if you do not knock it, so knock, the door's not going to open. This head, that's a knock. And this is how it works. Police frequent to this place. It was very, very popular. Lee, this had very flamboyant character, silky blousey shirts, floppy hat, silk scarf tied around his neck. Henry had an impeccably dressed with the very, very best feather head pieces in the Roaring Twenties. Big drinkers love to drink with their clientele. Their clientele consists of Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Sinclair. It just goes on and on. Every author came here to drink. It was a little rowdy. You know, some of the neighbors would complain a little bit. But as I said, it was everybody's favorite. Henrietta especially loved to drink with her clientele. <laughs> Friends with the police department, if there was to be a raid, they would be tipped off. There would be a side entrance, a little bit different back then. There would be a side entrance, and there would be that certain knock. The doorman would then open the latch on the door, and the police officer say, 86 of them. I mean, get them out. This place still to this day has every single thing that Speakeasy would want. Trap door, bookshelf, <laughs> secret passage, back entrance. I do know the side door is the police were coming in. They're still there today. They say the number one haunted spot in the city is Chumley's. Uh, many, many stories about Chumley's. They guys in upstairs in the 1930s had a heart attack. They said you could see him bouncing down the stairs with his hat flopping. Lights flicker on and off. Yet arms slide across. And the most notorious of all, the loser, drunk, picks up his glass, smashes it, sticks it in the winner's jugger thing, kills him in the 1960s. Shortly after this, Henrietta dies at her favorite table right in front of the fireplace with a drink in hand. She also has a heart attack there. So as you heard there from Damien, someone was murdered inside and Henrietta Chumley had a heart attack at her favorite table. Henrietta and Leland are said to haunt their old bar. 
one young man claimed to come into the bar alone, and he slid into a booth that faced the fireplace. He saw an attractive woman sitting there looking at him. She raised her glass and toast to him, and then looked above him to the wall where several pictures of famous writers were hanging. He wasn't sure if she was toasting him or them. He finished his drink, slipped on his jacket, and headed for the door. He decided to turn and give the woman a farewell wave, and when he looked back, she was nowhere to be seen. Could this have been Henrietta? There are other ghosts here, too. Employees claim that glasses smash on their own. After 9-11, it is said that the spirits of several firefighters that died have been seen gathered around the jukebox, enjoying each other's company in the afterlife. These are the times that try men's souls. That's a line from Thomas Paine's work, The Crisis. Paine was known as the father of the revolution and his writing stirred a nation to freedom. He's one of my favorite founding fathers, and I've owned a copy of his work Common Sense for as long as I can remember. This was published on January 19, 1776, and sold over 100,000 copies within three months, and basically challenged the reader to take up arms and fight for liberty. Toward the end of his life, Payne called Greenwich Village his home. He died here when he was 72, and he was an outcast at the time because of many of his anti-religion and anti-Christian writings. As a matter of fact, no church would bury him, so he was buried under a walnut tree on his farm in New Rochelle. Payne's former home is known today as Marie's Crisis, and can be found at 59 Grove Street. This is not the original house. A new building was put up, and it ran as a brothel during the 1850s. In the 1890s, it housed a basement bar for gay men. During Prohibition, it became a bar known as Marie's, and it is still that today, having been renamed Marie's Crisis, giving homage to both the speakeasy and then Thomas Paine's work, The Crisis. Sure. This is a piano bar where Broadway actors like to come after shows and give impromptu performances. There was a queue of people waiting outside to get in when we passed by, even though it was freezing. Must have been a good show, so they wanted to get in. Sure. One of the spirits that is said to be here is that of Thomas Paine himself, who seems to either like his former house or to be at unrest for some reason. Perhaps that reason is the fact that a man had him disinterred so that he could be given an honorable burial over in Britain, which is where he was originally from. And that man died before the bones were buried, and now they've become lost. Yeah, so now we don't know where Thomas Bain is buried. That's terrible. (laughs) A disembodied voice that seems to be debating has been heard often in the bar. One piano player claimed that he saw a bright red orb when he was playing, and this orb started coming at him, scaring him so bad that he would not return to the bar. He said that it was not only red, but that it gave off a lot of heat. It's really weird because usually if there's a ghost nearby, it's cold. Right. We have had a few stories on episodes where people have felt an extreme heat when there's a ghost nearby. It is odd, though. And one of the things that I've always really thought was odd is when you see the FLIR camera, which is the temperature kind of camera on these ghost hunting shows. It'll show like if there's a ghost somewhere red. And I'm like, how are they giving off a heat signature if they're a ghost and they're really cold? Right. The townhouse at 14 West 10th Street in New York City is a beautiful Greek revival home built in the late 1850s. Brownstone has played host to many of New York's elite and was even home to Mark Twain for a year in 1901. It sits on a beautiful picturesque block and many people would probably just walk by the townhouse without the slightest shudder. But shudder they should, because this townhouse has a dark past that has led to it being nicknamed the House of Death. Death came in many forms here, from suicide to murder to natural death. For this reason, it's believed that the brownstone is haunted by many spirits, one of whom is Mark Twain. Is the reputation deserved? And is it possible that somehow this building itself has become a portal bringing nefarious creatures into our world? James Borman Johnston was the son of a prominent Scottish-born New York merchant, John Johnston. 
He had been a founding member of the Metropolitan Underground Railroad and the Broadway Underground Railroad. His wife was one of the first residents at number 14. At that time, it was a single-family home. In 1900, Mark Twain took up residence and stayed for a year. Later, another couple had moved in, and while details are hard to find, it would seem that a murder-suicide resulted from the relationship. As the years went by, a need for housing grew in the city. Brownstones started converting to multifamily apartments. 14 West 10th Street converted to 10 apartments in 1937. So that was a pretty big house for Mark Twain to be hanging out in if they could make it into 10 apartments. Of course, this is New York. I was going to say, New York apartments can sometimes be the size of a walk-in closet. Yeah, so... (laughs) Jan Bryant Bartell was an actress, author, and poet. She and her husband moved into the house of death into a top-floor apartment in the 1970s. This had been the former servants' quarters. They'd only lived there a short time when strange things began to happen. Their dogs seemed to see something they could not, and they reacted very negatively towards whatever it was. Then Jan noticed it, too. She described it as a monstrous moving shadow. Things got so bad that Jan decided to call in some help, and she contacted a ghost hunter. Not any ghost hunter. She called Hans Holzer, who was a world-renowned expert in the paranormal, and I'm sure many of our listeners have heard of him. I'm sure. He came to the house and confirmed her suspicions that something supernatural was going on at the apartments. They both believed that several people had died in the brownstone for mysterious causes. But nothing he did helped. Jan believed he made matters worse for her and her husband. She decided to document their experiences in a book that she published in 1974 called Spindrift, Spray from a Psychic Sea. Jan had considered herself a skeptic, but now she believed in the paranormal and even thought she had become somewhat psychic herself. Jan and her husband moved out of number 14 in 1973. Sadly, Jan died of a heart attack shortly thereafter. She never got the chance to enjoy the publication of her book. Some believe she has returned to number 14. There are even those who claim that she herself died in the house, but there's no evidence to back that up. Damien talks about the house and his thoughts on it here. From here, I know 1937, the one family gets split up into condos. Six of them. Two, four, six, like eight, because there was two basements. Okay. Uh, In there was a mother and daughter living in the basement flat. They came home one day, and a man in a white suit with white hair is sitting in a chair in the window. The mother asks, who are you? He says, I am Clemens. I am here for unfinished business. Now, I know... Clemens, Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. is Mark Twain. And this was the Mark Twain house in 1901. He and his family lived here for a couple of years before he moves to Connecticut where he died in 1910. He was a skeptic. He said, it's not the eyes that are out of focus, it's the imagination. Funny, for being such a skeptic, Mm -hmm. in 1960s, a Broadway actress occupies the top right floor. Her uh, Jane Campbell... And she records 22 different entities living in the house. Wow. A shadow ghost, a young girl, an old woman, a man on the staircase in a white suit with white hair. She talks about a negative energy in the house. This is the only one. And this is the one stop that kind of freaks me out, and I'll get to that. She writes a book, uh, Psychic Drift, A Wave from a Psychic Sea. It is out of publication in 1972, but she records this dark energy that follows her around the building. She records hearing a hostile voice speaking. She also calls in a parapsychologist, a clairvoyant, and she has a seance. In the seance, they ask this demonic spirit to please leave the house. 
and in a very gruff woman's voice, they hear, I will not leave this house. This is my house. I will not leave. Come to find out, this entity, her husband purchases the house for her. He is, she is his new bride. He goes to the Civil War never to return. So they say that is the one demonic energy here in the house. Now, I was a newspaper boy when I was 13. I skeeved the job. My fingers every night when I came home were filthy, dirty, black. I don't read a newspaper to this day. <laughs> never watched the news until of late. But I never watched the news. In uh, 1988, I lived just down the street here in the East Village. And I will never forget this. It was on the news every single night. I was fascinated. It was Joel Steinberg, a predominant lawyer here in the city. And I thought his wife, but come to find out, it was his girlfriend who spooked me. There was something about the way she looked, her hair, her face. She just kind of gave me the creeps. Upstairs in this apartment, they have two adopted children, two-year-old Mitchell and six-year-old Sally. He severely beats Sally to death with the phone and kills her. He leaves her for dead. Two days later, she's found Mitchell strapped to the bed in filth and squalor in her dead body. Now, we all here in the city thought the two of them did it. Later to find out that she, the girlfriend, was a victim herself. She looked the way that he, she did because he also beat her so severely he i believe got 16 years or 20 maybe it was 20 something he was released just several years ago that i know the little boy mitchell returned to his natural birth mother and the girlfriend still somewhere here in the city this used to be called the mark twain house today we new yorkers call it the house of death when, and I do not stand in front of the door. A lot of the guides do. I see the mother and daughter come out to walk the dog and they're talking about the murder. I tend to come across the street on this one. Every person that purchases one of the condos inside has to be told about the murder. So they do know about it, but I don't think that it's cool to stand there and talk about it in front of it. It's the house of death. So as you heard there, Damien is not necessarily afraid of the house as much as he just doesn't like to talk about it in front of it because of all the bad stuff that had happened there. Right. And there's current residents today. So, And Kelly, let's share a little bit more details because he just kind of brushed over what is the most recent things that had happened there that were criminal. So let's go ahead and share that with the audience. So Joel Steinberg was a criminal defense attorney in New York. He moved into the house of death with his partner, Hedda Nosbaum, and their two illegally adopted children in the 1980s. One of the children was named Lisa. A single mother had hired Steinberg to find a family for Lisa. Instead of locating a family, Steinberg took Lisa home with himself and never bothered to file adoption papers. He more than likely was not a suitable parent and would not have passed the scrutiny because Lisa would end up dead. One of Steinberg's issues was that he liked crack cocaine, He hit six-year-old Lisa in the head one day. A call came into police that a child was not breathing at the house of death at 7 a.m. on November 4, 1987. Lisa was rushed to the hospital, where she was later taken off of life support. Her younger brother was a baby at the time and found tied to the playpen, covered in filth. He was removed from the home, and Steinberg was arrested for murder. He was convicted of first-degree manslaughter and sentenced to 8 to 25 years. He was released in 2004. It came to light that Steinberg had been beating Hedda as well, causing her serious permanent damage to her spine and face. He truly was a psychopath. So that's who Damien was talking about, that the woman just looked freaky to him? 
that that's why she looked freaky because she'd been so horribly beaten. And then as you guys heard there from Damien, one of the most prominent ghosts at the house of death is Mark Twain. I love that little saying that he said to the woman too. I would have been so scared. I don't know that I would have remembered what he said. (laughs) True. He'd only lived there for a year and had not died there, but he must have liked the place since he's returned in the afterlife. People claim to have seen him wearing his standard white suit and hanging around the first floor and the staircase. Paranormal investigators that have investigated the building claim that there is a lady in white at the house, as well as the ghost of a young child and a ghost cat. In total, 22 separate entities have been counted. Several of the entities bring a darkness into the building. The feeling is oppressive and menacing. The shadows in the corners of the rooms seem to have a life of their own. Did they drive Steinberg to murder, or was that already in him? Greenwich Village is a neighborhood full of wonderful history spanning decades of slums, factories, to brothels and speakeasies, to artist communes and civil rights battles. Today, the village still holds much of its charm, making it our favorite place we visited in New York City. We loved it so much that we had to visit during the daytime the day after our tour. Is the village full of haunts? That is for you to decide. Well, Kelly, I had a great time there. We know we have some listeners who live in New York, especially New York City, maybe. Right. You have a wonderful city to visit. Absolutely. But that's all I would ever want to do. I don't know how anybody lives there. (laughs) It's definitely not really something in our wheelhouse in terms of long term. I'm an introvert and I don't like people. So (laughs) (laughs) New York is just not my cup of tea. A little bit too much hustle and bustle for our way of life. If there's a lot of people and now pot is legal there. So pretty much it smelled like pot everywhere (laughs) we went. I'm so naive. I kept looking around going, how is there a skunk around here? (laughs) And finally I told Kelly, I was like, oh no, that's pot, Kelly. I'm like, oh, that's what they mean by skunk weed. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) We didn't get to eat a whole lot of the New York food kind of thing because we were just on the move so much. It was like whatever we could catch quick and some of the stuff that people suggest like pizza and cheesecake, we would have loved, but... At our age, our digestive systems aren't what they used to be. So we try <laughs> to true. be as nice to them as possible, especially when we're traveling. So we couldn't be By too foot. crazy with stuff. <laughs> Most of the time. Yeah. yeah. I never thought I would ever get to visit New York City. And so this was such a wonderful opportunity to get to do that. It was a blast experiencing it with you. Absolutely. It definitely was. And we had a great time at the awards. And there was a lot of great people there, a lot of really cool things that were nominated because it was about photography and food and museum displays and things like that. So we got to see a lot of that stuff, too. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We did get an email from Rachel that I want to share with you. Rachel writes, I found your show randomly and I'm a person that loves history and I love ghosts. I want to share a story with you guys. My family and I bought a house in August 2018. We did a couple of walkthroughs of the house before moving in. And I always felt like there was something in the house, especially in my room, which was the master. Nothing bad or evil, more of an old soul feeling. One day I decided to get DoorDash and the driver was coming out of the house and told me that my house used to be her grandmother's house. I immediately asked the question, Did her grandmother die in the house? And she responded that, yes, she did in the master bedroom of a heart attack. From time to time, I will get that feeling that someone is around. And I say, I respect your space, respect mine. We are in the process of adding a garage to the house, and I feel like she approves it. To make sure that the DoorDash's driver's story added up, I went down to the records office in my town and turns out that it did check out. 
I really wanted to share that with you guys. Anyways, I hope you guys have a great weekend. Hugs all around. Well, hugs back to you, Rachel. Absolutely. And that's very interesting. And how cool. Some random DoorDash person came up and she made that connection. So definitely synchronicity right there. And can you imagine that she's coming up to deliver the food and is going, oh, it's grandma's house. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So I have no doubt maybe grandma is hanging out there. I would imagine. I want to thank you guys for joining us on this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Nadja Calderon for your one-time donation. And welcome into the cemetery, Linda Baudreau. And I hope that I said that last name right. You will be buried under a marble headstone. Jacob Reinard, we're going to be putting you in a chest tomb. And Chantel Parker... You're going to be buried in a garden tomb and all of you will be getting stickers and two of you magnets as well in the mail. Thanks so much, you guys. It really goes far to help us. Be sociable. Drop the chain rattling, neck biting and shape shifting and join us on Facebook and Twitter at History Goes Bump. Like the page and follow us. Terracotta trumpets are along the roof line as opposite sides of the. (laughs) Get out, dog. (laughs) Go, Riley. You're distracting. To get to the upper floors, firemen would go up a narrow spiral. Does that help you say staircase better? (laughs) My tongue is just not working today. Since the artist was not credited with. Since the artist was not credited with. (laughs) It would seem a sea cactus. It's okay, Kelly. It's not okay. I'm getting frustrated. You're going to get through it. (laughs) So as you heard there from Damien, someone was murdered inside the Henrietta Chumley. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody was murdered inside a Henrietta Chumley. Oh, my God. I just dropped an F-bomb, so you can't use that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, I can. I can believe it. No, you can't. Diane. (laughs) (laughs) Someone... You can do it, Kelly. You can. <laughs> Is it time for bed yet? <laughs> it's not even noon. It's just now noon. I'm tired. Someone was murdered inside, and Henrietta. <laughs> <laughs>